Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. My name's Kevin, and I'll be your host. I'm calling this episode 1.2. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to episode 1, uh, this is just a continuation of that. This is the response to the in-custody death of George Floyd in Minneapolis here in the United States. Uh, I had been recording episode one, and then my baby needed a bath uh, and bedtime, because that's just something that six months old, six months old, need. And I try to enjoy those moments while I can. I work swing shift, so I work basically two to midnight, two thirty to midnight. Um, so I don't often get to take part in the bedtime routine for uh, my son, and he's the only one I got. So it's a pretty new experience for me. Uh, so I just try to get in there as much as I can and, and be present for as much as I can. So moving forward from what I'd briefly touched on in episode one, um, these episodes were where it's just my thoughts. They're not going to be super long. I mean, 10 to 20 minutes, maybe. Um, I don't know how, how often people want to hear me, uh, and only me speak. So, um, couple of topics that I wanted to wanted to discuss. Um, I have only ever grown up in a upper middle class neighborhood. Um, the high school that I went to was predominantly middle class, uh, predominantly uh, white. And I think it does a disservice to the community that I police to not understand and accept that rather to just not accept or to accept that I do not understand what minority communities go through. I've never been a citizen in East Los Angeles. I've never been a cop anywhere else, but here in Arizona. And it's important to understand that there's different worldviews out there. And you can sit there and say that systemic racism doesn't exist or that if we keep talking about it, we'll never move past it. But I feel that we learn from our history. And our history is being made right now. I had the fortune of working uh, alongside a, a good friend of mine the other day, uh, Marvis. He's going to be actually the first guest uh, on the podcast when I, when I set up the interviews, uh, which is really just setting up an additional microphone. Um, and I, I had a good long conversation with Marvis, and it was it was actually cathartic uh, in ways, uh, at least on 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 my end. I, I can't speak for him, uh, but I'm sure that we'll cover it uh, when when he comes on the podcast. Hopefully, in a week or two. Uh, Marvis and I talked about being a black American and a black police officer post Ferguson, Missouri. That was that was the big. Uh, incident that uh, had preceded his career in law enforcement, at least as a as a city cop. And I have to say that he presented some topics or, or some views that, uh, to be honest, I'd never even considered. Uh, he talked about how he got pulled over uh, a few weeks back by uh, an outside agency. Um, not obviously not the one that he works for. Um, and he was nervous when he got pulled over. 
And I was like, really? Even, I mean, you're a cop, man. You know how we're trained. Uh, you know, we all more or less go to the same police academy, really. Um, and he said, yeah. And I, I asked him, did you, did you tell the officer who pulled you over that you were a cop? And he said, no, it, it didn't come out right away. Um, and he, he came up and like all cops should, should do, you know, some of the questions you should ask, do you have any weapons in the vehicle? And, uh, Marvis responded with, yes, my off duty gun is in the glove box. And he said that the demeanor of the officer completely changed once he understood that he was talking, you know, it was, it was cop to cop interaction. Um, and Marvis had said that he, he still, even though he is a law enforcement officer as a black male, he still gets nervous, uh, when he gets pulled over. And that, uh, that, that surprised me a little bit. Um, and, and it bothered me, not his viewpoint, not the way he feels, but that he has to feel that way. Now you can comment on this and, you know, say it's just, uh, what's the buzzword that's been going around that, uh, you can just say that, oh, well, you're just talking for the sake of talking. You're just saying this because of what's going on right now. No, I, I, Marvis presented some things that I'd never even considered, never even thought about. And I'm glad that I had that conversation with him. Um, I will let him tell more of his story though. Once we come on, uh, to an interview here in a couple of weeks, um, I did want to go over the eight can't wait as a new, Hashtag campaign, uh, 8cantwait.org is their website. I was just doing a little bit to educate myself. My wife and I were talking about it earlier. She brought up my agency and said, oh, of the eight things, your agency doesn't do three of the things. Um, so the the eight things that uh, um, the eight policies that can, this says, can decrease police violence by 72%. Are ban chokeholds and strangleholds, require de-escalization, require warning before shooting, require, uh, that's worded, they, they worded a little weird, exhaust all alternatives before shooting, duty to intervene, ban shooting at moving vehicles, require the use of force continuum, and require comprehensive reporting. Uh, I know that in the last year, there is a new uh, comprehensive reporting system that's being rolled out. My agency has uh, been working to adopt it. Um, the example that that Eight Can't Wait gives is um, requires officers to report each time they use force or threaten to use force uh, against civilians. Real quick, a police officer is a civilian. You are not a member of the armed forces. A sworn law enforcement officer for a municipality or a rather a state local uh, a state or local agency is a civilian. You are a representative of your community and police departments and police agencies should be a cross section of that community. Does it always work? Absolutely not. Um but that's what we should strive to remember is that we are still American citizens and civilians. Um, but I understand that they're using civilian, the word civilian to delineate between uh, the folks out on the street and then those of us in police cars. So 
require officers to report each time they use force or threaten to use force against civilians. My agency has a supplemental report that gets attached to uh, the the primary report that's written, um, or you, it's a just an additional supplement. Uh, just says your capacity, patrol, SWAT, canine, etc. Uh, what you uh, we have a show of force report rather, um, and a use of force report. So the show of force report is the newest one, and it's okay. I pointed a firearm or a, uh, a taser or a less lethal uh, munitions launcher uh, at a subject. Uh, asks where you work and then gives you like one or two lines to, to fill out a very brief synopsis uh, on the understanding that your supplemental report or your primary narrative will go into greater detail. Um, Eight Can't Wait shows that my agency doesn't use comprehensive reporting. I would say that that's not accurate. Um, but again, we've only been doing it for about about a year now. So uh, requires the use of force continuum. Um, many agencies have a use of force continuum. There are some agencies, I was just reading, um, Meridian and Boise in Idaho, uh, they do not have a use of force continuum because uh, it's too structured and use of force is fluid. And and I would say that I agree with that statement. Um, police work is certainly uh, dynamic to use the tactical hashtag buzzword of choice um, or kinetic. I think kinetic is the newer one. Uh, an example of use of force straight from the National Institute of Justice, uh, nij.ojp.gov, is uh, officer presence, verbalization, empty hand control techniques, less lethal methods, and then lethal force at the very end of that. I don't see why an agency wouldn't have a use, uh, or excuse me, a, a use of force continuum, uh, at least as a, a guideline, right? What's he say in Pirates of the Caribbean? They're more like guidelines and actual rules. Um, understand, to those of you outside of law enforcement, is we may arrive to a situation and already be at lethal force. For example an officer being ambushed in their vehicle, I'm not going to get out of my car and try and kumbaya that person who's unloading round after round into my Tahoe. It's not going to happen. If I get out of my car at a DV, a domestic violence situation, and somebody comes sprinting out of the front door of the house with a gun in their hand, I'm not going to taser that person. Conversely, if I arrive on a, a DV call and it's, uh, I would say it's a typical scenario or interview question. You arrive on a DV call as you approach the home, you hear no, 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 uh, stop stabbing me or no, no, no. And then a gunshot, you've got exigency, uh, that is to say a, a warrantless entry into that home is permitted in order to, um, establish the safety of those inside the home. Uh, if you hear a gunshot coming from a house, if you're in an active shooter situation, you're not going to try and verbalize or use empty hand control techniques against somebody who's senselessly murdering as many civilians as they can, as many citizens as they can. I would assume that the people who have published this eight can't wait understand that, and that's probably not the situation that they're talking about. However, 
it bears repeating that there are certain situations where you're not going to be able to use crisis intervention techniques and training. Um, you're not going to be able to use a taser. It is going to be a balls to the wall fight to the death right then and there. Uh, ban shooting at moving vehicles. Uh, again, I, I, I wouldn't ban shooting at moving vehicles. You look at some of the past uh, terror incidences, uh, terrorist incidences in Europe where they're using large box trucks to drive down sidewalks uh, on bridges, uh, down tightly packed streets, and they're using those box trucks as their weapon to kill as many citizens as they can. I'm going to assume that most police officers presented with that threat are going to shoot at that vehicle. I would suggest the windshield. Um, however, perhaps what they're talking about, restrict officers from shooting and moving vehicles, which is regarded as a particularly dangerous and ineffective tactic. Um, again, if that vehicle is being used as a weapon uh, to try and kill somebody, I can't see an officer not shooting at that vehicle unless their backdrop is no good. Um, I, I would say that that's a personal choice uh, for the officer. Uh, I do not recommend that you in, in, uh, instate a complete ban for shooting at moving vehicles. But again, this is all part of what, what we need to have is we need to have this dialogue because the folks at 8 Can't Wait probably never put on a badge. They've probably never been police officers. I would encourage those of you that are out there listening. Once the COVID-19 restrictions go away, my agency, we're not allowed to have ride-alongs right now. Get people out there. You cannot build relationships from behind a windshield. Talk to the people in your community. Invite them to do a ride-along. If your agency has it in place where you cannot do ride-alongs, um, unless you're an applicant, I would maybe start to ask why you can't do ride-alongs unless you're an applicant. S start with your sergeant. Hey, boss, this is a policy we have. I think it'd be a good idea to get some of the citizens out to see how we do things. Like, you know, you can put it in two, four, ten hours, whatever. Um, whenever somebody comes on a ride-along with me, I always ask them, how long do you want to stay? Some people say, oh, well, you work until 1230. I've got to get up for work in the morning. I'll stay until 7 p.m. Totally fine. Some people stay the full 10. Um, if, if your agency doesn't allow ride-alongs, I'd maybe, maybe look into why that is. Uh, next up is the duty to intervene. Require officers to intervene and stop excessive force used by other officers and report these incidents immediately to a supervisor. Covered that briefly in episode one. Uh, I guess I would episode 1.1, if you will, um, that you do have a moral and ethical obligation to intervene when an officer is using excessive force or when an officer is kneeling on the neck of a man for somewhere between seven and 10 minutes. You have not, not only a moral and ethical obligation to yourself, but to your community and to the badge that you put on. The badge that you put on says that you are a protector. And sometimes the person that you have to protect is a person who was just fighting your buddy because you were about to arrest them for whatever crime was committed. 
that person still deserves a chance at life. And so I maintain that, yes, I I wholeheartedly agree with duty to intervene. Um, If your agency has a culture where, oh, I've only been doing this for a year, I can't tell that officer that's been doing this for 20 years how to do his job. I can't tell that officer, hey, man, I stop hitting that dude. Hey, man, ease up, uh, walk away from that situation. That needs to be fixed. And that, again, that's a very deep-seated cultural issue within law enforcement. Um, that duty to intervene bears, uh, it's worth talking about as we go forward uh, with some of the interviews that we do. So we'll go up next is uh, exhaust all alternatives before shooting. Uh, require officers to exhaust all other reasonable means before resorting to deadly force. So I appreciate that they put the word reasonable in there because so much of what we do in law enforcement when it comes to use of force is what would a reasonable person do at that time with the facts and circumstances and the totality of those circumstances. Uh, So yes, require that you exhaust all alternatives before shooting. And again, the way that that's written with all other reasonable means uh, would say to me that uh, if you're responding to an active shooter, I don't think that people are going to be angry with you for killing the active shooter or for using lethal means to stop the threat. Um, if somebody wants to wants to fight, one thing I, I'd mentioned earlier, uh, my, my good buddy and, and partner, Officer Marvis, uh, if you've got somebody who's, you know, 6'5", 240 pounds, uh, and you are a, uh, I'm six feet, 200 pounds. Uh, we have uh, officers in my agency that are five feet and 100 pounds. Um, and we talk about would you be justified in using deadly force simply based on somebody's size? I think yes. Um, one thing that that Marvis said is, uh, you know, you, you walk up to some giant dude and just say, "Look, uh, if you screw around, I'm just going to kill you." Is that necessarily the best tactic? I don't know. Um. I would say that at some point in time, no matter how cool of a karate master you are or how much Brazilian jiu-jitsu or Krav Maga you've done, you may get into a fist fight with somebody, a physical altercation, hand-to-hand combat, and you may get to that point of losing and you may not have the opportunity to pull out your gun. I think that that's a conversation worth having um, with some of the folks from 8 Can't Wait or uh, you know, even some of the people that you find on social media using the hashtag uh, for the hashtag campaign be worth talking about, um, especially if it's, you know, friends or like uh, friends of my wife. They don't necessarily uh, support everything that law enforcement does. Um, I-, I talked earlier about conditional support, but again, it's worth having a dialogue. We can we can choose to talk about it or I can choose to just look at those people and go, you have no fucking clue what it's like to do my job. It's too easy to fall into that ladder category. It's too easy to say, you've never walked a mile in my boots, kiss my ass and get out of my way. Why not have the conversation? If you at least make the attempt at the conversation, if they don't want to reciprocate, well, then that's on them. The ball was put back in their court and they don't want to listen. They don't want to have that two-way street dialogue. And that's how we're going to get through all this is just talking because some people have no idea what it's like and you present reasonable and valid arguments and, and maybe do your level best to not get heated out of it. I know a lot of cops, we're all type A personalities. We're all extremely passionate. Uh, 
And, and if there's anybody that can, that can argue, it's probably a cop. Um, but it's, it's worth just trying to, to talk to one another, you know, over coffee, ice cream, it's hot outside, go get some ice cream. Uh, that way you may be able to present something that they've never thought of, or they'll have a question for you. You can say, Hey, well, in my experience or in my opinion, uh, here's an example of this. And they may go, okay, well, I never thought about it like that. So requiring that you exhaust all alternatives before shooting that has a, that has a place and that comes into the use of force continuum. So you could almost tie those together. Um, but seven can't wait, doesn't have as nice of a ring to it. Require warning before shooting, require officers to give a verbal warning when possible before shooting at a civilian. Um, so, uh, well, the wording on this before shooting at a civilian, as opposed to before shooting at a, a suspect or a subject, um, it's not wrong. It's just an interesting way to word the statement. Um, again, giving a, a verbal warning when possible before shooting at a civilian. So my agency trains, if you draw your gun, you say, police, stop. That's your verbal warning. If you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to get shot. You do not say, stop or I'm going to kill you. You say, stop or I will shoot. Or police stop. Um, so many of, rather, so much of what we do now is driven by those little body cameras that we wear, uh, and and the wording that we choose to ingrain in our new officers is probably specific for a reason. Uh, again, though, coming from the standpoint, I'll tie it right back to an active shooter, right, where this pendulum's going to swing both ways. Um, I was in a uh, decision shoot using a. Uh, it was like a CO2 gun and, and there was a simulator. Uh, it's not Vertra, but it, it was something similar to that. And there was an active shooter came around the corner. Uh, rather the camera comes around the corner. You're not actually moving, uh, of a, you're in a high school camera comes around the corner, masked man, uh, with, uh, I think he had an AR 15 or an AK, uh, you know, one of the big scary guns, uh, is about to enter a classroom. I said, Police stop. He turned toward me, raised the gun. I shot. End scenario. Uh, the person manning the, the computer uh, looks at me and goes, why'd you give him a verbal warning? And my response was very simply because I have a body camera on. He comes from the, the days of law enforcement where body cameras and even audio recorders were a thing. And he, he looked at me quizzically and he goes, that guy's about to enter a classroom. He turns You've given him a verbal warning. He turns and shoots you. Okay, fair argument. Um, in that scenario, it worked in my favor. Will it always work in my favor? No. If there's multiple shooters, um, then definitely a valid argument. Why do you want to telegraph your position? If there's multiple shooters, uh, you know, shooter A is about to enter a classroom. You come around a corner. You uh, eliminate the threat that is shooter A. Shooter B just hears more gunfire. Well that shooter may not realize that, uh, his buddy's down. So, uh, but again, this, the eight can't wait says when possible. So again, I would assume that the people behind eight can't wait, understand that it's not always going to, uh, be a perfect situation. It rarely is required deescalation. So I'm, I'm a CIT officer. I know a whole lot of people that shake their heads at that. Um, I know a whole lot of people who refuse to go to CIT, uh, crisis intervention training. And when you go through crisis intervention training, they even say that 
they don't want people forced to go into the 40 hour class, um, simply because it, it degrades the quality of the product. Um, so reading from their website require officers to deescalate situations where possible by communicating with subjects, maintaining distance and otherwise eliminating the need to use force. So I would look at this as, uh, uh, an example of a suicidal subject, um, start with a phone call. Suicide's not illegal. Uh, people always, Oh really? Suicide's not illegal. Well, who am I going to charge? Oh yeah. Okay. Fair point. So, um, that's one de-escalation tactic. You've got somebody, somebody calls in and said, Hey, my buddy just sent me a picture of uh, him holding a gun to his head. And he said, Hey, I'm sorry. Thanks for being a good friend. Can you go check on him? Well, oftentimes that leads to a suicide by cop type situation, or that leads to an officer putting themselves in harm's way, uh, or that suicidal subject acting, uh, acting out their intent. Uh, and so we, we try to use a phone call as long as there's nobody else inside, then we can create all sorts of distance. We can be blocks away from this person and use a phone. Um, you could have a desk officer do it. You probably wouldn't want a desk officer to do it just in case there was an immediate need to respond to that location. Um, we had a, a suicidal subject left his house and then went back to his house. Well, that changes things a little bit because there's people inside the home, but we were able to get the people, uh, his family members outside of the home. We were able to talk him out. He came out, uh, you know, following uh, police commands and we were able to get him uh, somewhere to get him some help and, and get him to talk to somebody. Um, uh, so I, I'm all for de-escalation. Um, requires officers where po again they're using the language where possible so again they they would understand these folks that it, it's not always going to work out that way you can walk up to us you know uh stopping across the street hey this guy at a bus stop he's walking around with a knife in his hand and you can stand across the street yeah hey man are you okay what's going on can you put the knife down i need you to put the knife down but if that guy runs towards you uh i don't i don't believe in the 21 foot rule people can run awful fast um knife blades can can be longer than than a swiss army knife um but i'm all for de-escalation again de-escalation to me falls into the use of force continuum which is verbal presence uh, and, and just using that communication ban chokeholds and strangleholds allowing officers to choke or strangle civilians in many cases where less lethal force could be used instead results in the unnecessary death or serious injury of civilians uh, i've seen tasers fail on people who are high on certain narcotics uh, i've seen tasers fail on people that are wearing thick clothing those barbs won't penetrate a heavy winter jacket um, i've seen 40 millimeter launchers and beanbag grounds fail to uh, do what they're designed to do. They may very well hit that target, but but it takes a minute for the person to realize, ow, that really hurt. Uh, again, certain types of narcotics, um, people that are extremely intoxicated, they may not feel that pain, um, not to the extent where they rationalize that, okay, I probably, I don't want that to happen again. I probably shouldn't do that. And... I have uh, seen, not directly, uh, mind you, but I've I've seen where the carotid restraint control hold has been effective. I understand that the carotid restraint control hold is different than a choke hold and a strangle hold, but somebody looking at it 
will think it's the same thing. So for those of you that don't know, a carotid restraint control hold is a, a technique whereby the officer would put an arm around the neck of somebody who's fighting them in such a way where the crook of the elbow does not impede upon the trachea. Um, rather, the bicep and the forearm uh, impede upon the carotid artery so the person can still breathe, but you momentarily cut off uh, that fresh oxygenated blood supply to the brain. They go unconscious for a, a couple of minutes, um, if even that, really just long enough for you to get that person into handcuffs. Um, we've, we've heard stories, we've seen videos where that's the only thing that's worked against certain, certain subjects who are high on you know, bath salts or PCP or um, some other narcotic. So again, I think the chokeholds and strangleholds um, in and of themselves, yes, the chokehold and the stranglehold, um, if you are impeding somebody's airway, that's a last-ditch uh, method. That's that hand-to-hand combat, fight to the death. Uh, this person's not going back to prison. Um, this person wants to keep you from going home at night. Then, by all means, to, in my opinion, if somebody's trying to keep you from going home and you're at that um, that lethal force, that aggravated act of aggression where they're just going to try and kill you then in my opinion it's it's all bets are off um if you've got somebody where uh, a sage or some other less lethal munitions launcher beanbag whatever it is that hasn't worked the taser hasn't worked the oc spray hasn't worked um you you're just running out of options i mean you can do the polyester pileup um or you can if you can get somebody in there to to do a carotid restraint control then then go for it. But again, you better be damn confident and know exactly what you're doing for that carotid restraint control hold to work. Um, I know plenty of cops that are like, nope, screw it. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to kill that person. Uh, I think I'm just going to deck them out and just go into a fight or I'm going to get as many friends of, I, of mine as I can uh, and, and we'll just handle it that way. So that is the eight can't wait. That is, um, that is what they require. There's a list. If you go onto their website, you can select a city. Um, they've got, I don't know, a hundred, 200 cities in there. Um, California, Arizona, Texas, New York, Alabama, Louisiana, New Mexico, a lot of California. Um, I don't see too much coming out of See Ohio, Florida, Minnesota, Missouri, a lot of California, handful of Texas, North Carolina. I see a lot coming out of the West Coast and the South, but I only see Newark, New Jersey, and New York, New York. I don't see a lot coming out of uh, the Northeast there. And it may just be that they haven't quite gotten, I mean, this is a fairly new campaign. They just haven't quite gotten all the data they were looking for. So... Um, I think that we're going to, we're going to end it for there. I just wanted to finalize some of those thoughts from, from episode 1.1 here in episode 1.2. At the end of the day, you, the officer, uh, or you, the citizen, you're, you're the one who makes the choice. Um, there seems to be a, a, a lashing out against people saying, well, if he hadn't committed a crime, not every crime 
is going to require somebody to lose their life. You've already got somebody in handcuffs. They're still fighting you. They're kicking off a cruiser. You can use a rip restraint. Um, you can use shackles, um, the, you know, the leg irons, the handcuffs. Well, I guess they're leg cuffs really, but the handcuffs specifically designed for legs or that good old, you know, polyester pileup, get a couple people, get them loaded into a cruiser, uh, being mindful of that positional asphyxiation, get them off to the jail. They'll live. You'll live. Everybody gets to go to court. It's a good time had by all. Um, that is sarcasm. If you weren't able to tell. So ultimately it's your choice as to what you do going forward from this. I don't know what the history books are going to say. There are people calling for defunding of law enforcement agencies Minneapolis City Council is calling for the uh, complete removal, not all of Minneapolis City Council, members of the Minneapolis City Council are calling for the uh, complete uh, dismantling of Minneapolis Police Department in favor of a new age, um, I, I forget exactly what they said, basically a new age law enforcement method. Be careful how far you let that pendulum swing. Law enforcement has been around for hundreds of years, uh, and really, even before uh, Sir Robert Peel and the Bow Street Runners of London, the cities and villages and towns uh, throughout Europe and throughout the Middle A or the, the Middle Ages had some sort of of city guard or law enforcement, uh, a sheriff, whatever the case may be. If you completely remove law enforcement from your city, don't don't put up the Pikachu surprised face meme when it backfires. I asked Marvis uh, about him becoming a police officer, and he said, I made the choice to be a part of the change. And that really resonated with me. There's another black officer that I work with, a female officer. I talked to her a little bit today just through Instagram Messenger, and she said the same thing. Instead of defunding police departments, let's work to truly make your agency a cross-section of, of your city. Let's work on getting funding for some of these agencies to put in better, more up-to-date, more effective training. Let's work with our agencies. Let's have sit-downs. You know, everybody wants to, not everybody, some people want to boo-hoo the coffee with a cop. I think, again, I think anything that opens up dialogue, it's going to happen in different ways. You can't just always hold a meeting in your community room at your headquarters station. Sometimes you got to get out there. Again, I will say you cannot build a relationship with your community from behind the windshield of your police car. Get out of your car and talk to somebody. Show them that you are a human just like they are. I don't have anything else. Otherwise, I'll probably just ramble on. This is Blue Line Millennial. Stay safe, and we'll see you on the road.